This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we join you remotely from Mexico City and we're talking about new presidents. Mexicans will go to the polls to select a new president this weekend, and that's what brings us to Mexico's capital. And you might be able to hear some of the traffic in Mexico's capital, the busy Avenida Chapultepec, during some of this broadcast. Also this past week, Paraguay installed a new president, but did he ascend to his position through what some are calling a parliamentary coup? We'll search for answers later, but first, Lydia Bayoud is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Paraguay's parliament impeached President Fernando Lugo last week during a brief proceeding over the weekend and voted to remove him from office. Lugo was impeached for failing to maintain social order over a land dispute that resulted in the deaths of 17 people. Lugo initially stated he accepted the parliament's ruling, but now calls the government illegitimate and has promised to form his own government. Some are calling the move a parliamentary coup, and many Latin American countries are refusing to recognize Paraguay's new president, former vice president, Federico Franco. Several countries have withdrawn their ambassadors from Paraguay. Leaders of the Mercosur trading bloc will discuss a regional response to the Paraguayan government's actions this week at a summit in Argentina. Speaking at the Mercosur summit, Argentina's foreign minister, Hector Timerman, affirmed the region's support for Lugo. Last Friday, Fernando Lugo was not alone because 11 foreign ministers representing their presidents said that they are standing with him. We have been trying by all means to prevent the popular will from, once again, being surrendered. The summit's members, which include Paraguay, have barred Franco from attending the meetings, which began Thursday. We'll have an in-depth interview on this subject later in the program. Protests are spreading across Bolivia as policemen intensify their strike while demanding a wage hike from the government. Police forces are demanding equal pay on par with soldiers of the same rank. Some police officers have rejected a deal negotiated between their representative and the Interior Ministry and have vowed to elect new leadership. Other groups say they are still considering the deal. The Bolivian military has been deployed in the streets in order to keep the peace after protesters seized a police barracks in the capital city, La Paz. The government has said that the protests, which have turned violent at times, are laying the path for a coup d'etat. The leaders of the protesters say, however, that they are only interested in reaching an agreement on higher pay. The Chinese government is proposing a $10 billion loan to Latin American countries to support infrastructure projects. China's premier, Wen Jiaobao, announced the proposed line of credit at the end of his recent visit to the region. Jiaobao has also proposed a free trade pact between China and the Mercosur trading bloc, which includes Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. Analysts say Latin America represents a new destination for China to invest its huge foreign exchange reserves. Stronger economic ties may also provide China with greater access to Latin American resources. Analysts say Latin American countries may also benefit from China's expertise in manufacturing. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled Monday on a landmark case involving Arizona's state immigration law. The court struck down much of the law, which many opponents said unfairly targeted people of color. 
However, it upheld the provision allowing law enforcement officials to ask for immigration paperwork from anyone stopped or detained with reasonable suspicion in Arizona. A possible class action lawsuit against this so called papers please provision is making its way through lower courts. Three Mexican police officers died from a shootout in Mexico City's International Airport this week. They were attempting to arrest two men wearing police uniforms who were suspected of drug trafficking. The two suspects escaped, but a police spokesman says they are close to finding and arresting them. Officials say they have spent more than a year investigating federal and local officials in Mexico City who are suspected of operating a drug trafficking ring from the airport. Police say they have confiscated 440 pounds of cocaine at the airport this year alone. Finally, Mexicans will go to the voting booth this weekend to choose a new president. Enrique Peña Nieto, the candidate from the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, appears to be leading in the polls. His main rivals are leftist Andres Manuel López Obrador, who contested the last presidential elections claiming electoral fraud, and Josefina Vasquez Mota. A right wing candidate from the National Action Party, or PAN. Nearly 80 million Mexicans are eligible to vote in the general election on Sunday when they will also be able to vote for legislators and local officials. We'll have more on the elections coming up on this show. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. And now our first in depth interview this week about Mexico's presidential elections. Enrique Peña Nieto of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, Leads most polls by 10 points. Other leading candidates include Andres Manuel López Obrador of the PRD, the left wing party, and Josefina Vasquez Mota of the conservative PAN, the party that's been in power the past 12 years. Joining us to sort this all out is Jose Pepe Carreño, correspondent for Mexican newspaper Excelsior, one of the oldest new- newspapers in Mexico. Welcome, Pepe. Rick, it's a pleasure. Please.、Um, Help us explain to our audience this very complex Mexican election. Okay, let me go for very basic things at this point. First, we have yes, one right wing party, one left wing party, or left wing coalition, and one,、uh, let's say, center, some,、uh, center, center party, which happened to be the same party that was. Governing Mexico between 1929 and 2000. The PRI. The PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, that according with polls is very, the most viable、uh, winner on Sunday's election. Then you have the PAN that held power for 12 years as a, as a right wing party,、uh, very much in the model of,、uh, let's say,、uh, An American,、uh, American party, political party, meaning in terms of uh, uh, individual freedoms, individual responsibility,、uh, private、uh, enterprise, very much in that sense. And the left coalition that uh, has uh, three parties, three components the PRD, the Partido de la Revolución Democrática, that was born in the 1980s. At the end of the 1980s, with、uh, some people that left the PRI with, some,、uh, with the support of the Communist Party, with the support of the then Partido Socialista de los Trabajadores,、uh, they are trying to represent a more or less modern left, but also with very deep roots in the very old traditional Marxist left. 
So uh, these are the three part, the three groups that are buying for power. The PRI is the most likely winner, uh, mostly uh, because, in a way, people is tired from uh, what they believe has been an efficiency in the government uh, with the PAN, in meaning that a lot of the government initiatives were stopped in Congress by basically a coalition of the PRI and the PRD the, and the left. Uh, it is, uh, the la but the most bickering groups have been obviously the PAN and the leftist coalition, the PRD. This is the biggest change we've seen in Mexico in the past 12 years, is that the president used to be the biggest power in the country above all others with no real checks and balances. And, and now the Mexican Congress has really emerged. It is one of the important changes, the most important changes. It is, it, even if uh, some of us feel that uh, the Congress is not there yet, is not fulfilling well to well the responsibility, it's still very much into party bickering, into party troubles, whatever. The, the reality is that they have become really the purser of the country. They are starting to really fulfill the responsibility as the caretakers of the budget of the country. This, and this means power, of course. The, I think that one of the biggest stories in the, for the next, in the, during the next government, whoever is the president, is going to be how are they, is he or she, going to deal with the Congress. No, everybody expects the PRA victory. Nobody expects, though, that they will get a majority big enough as to just uh, ram through the projects and the proposals. So there will have to be a lot of negotiation, there will have to be a lot of accommodation with parties other than the, 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 the PRI itself. Let's get to what may happen if the PRI wins in a little bit. But, but first, I would have said two months ago that this was maybe the most boring Mexican election in generations. But, but yet, there's this new movement that is aligned with the PRD, Yo Soy 132, that seems to have enlivened the, the scenery here in, in the last few weeks. Are they going to have an impact on this or not? Look, uh, that is a great question because... I think that you could say that there are two Ciento uh, Trentados movements, in a way. One, a uh, Ciento Trentados movement that is really fed up with the whole system, but the whole, with all politicians, or at least all the traditional way to do things. And there is a part of it, I do not know if it's a majority or not, that is uh, very much against the PRI, against Peña Nieto, and maybe more in favor of López Obrador, but not necessarily for López Obrador. This is why people have compared them to the uh, Occupy movement in the United States. Yes. Uh, but uh, now, the, the problem is, and the point is in here, is that it is still very small. I mean, the social networks in Mexico are relatively small in comparison. If you see the, 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 the statistics, about 40% of Mexicans have real access to Internet. And, but, of course, it doesn't mean that all of them are into social networks. Now, uh, who, those who are in social networks are middle class and uppers, mostly. And the people in Ciento Trentaidos, let's not forget that this movement uh, appeared the first time 
in a private, in a very high-class private university called Universidad Iberoamericana, which is very expensive. It's not exactly a popular university. And then it spread to other private universities. And like it Italy. spread to these social networks. And, and they are masters in social networks. Indeed, they have all this. Uh, they have uh, it spread to the Tecnológico de Monterrey, spread to the ITAM, and then to the National University, to the, to, the, to the public universities. And that has become a movement. Now, if this is going to be, I think they have an impact. Uh, at least they called attention of, on, their, on, on their requests. But a lot of their demands were more against the traditional media than about the government itself or about the political movements of itself. So that's an interesting. That the traditional media were not covering politics in a deep no. and rich way. We're not having debates. It, and, we're, and we're not having a, that, that, that the traditional media was not informing properly about uh, about the about the campaigns. Now the curious thing, uh, if I may, the curious thing is that uh, you may uh, they spared a lot of uh, the left the left wing media, which is okay. But uh, you know, it is more uh, the, the anger of the youth of, of the young the young people were more about against the traditional media. But it's about in reality, it's about all media, not only the traditional media. When we talk about traditional media and powerful traditional media in Mexico, we're mainly talking about Televisa, sometimes TV Azteca, and in watching and the old newspapers and, and some of the newspapers. Yes, the old newspapers, basically against paper newspapers. Very traditionally political, like El Universal, like Milenio, that for good or for bad, they were our faces for the system. Let's put it that way. They are, uh, there has been a, a few aggressions in recent days against uh, some journalists, which are uh, considered as anti-leftists, anti-left, or the, which are considered the spokesmen for the system. But uh, the reality is that. This anger is very against every uh, a media that they feel that has not complied, that has not uh, accomplished their task the way they believe it should be done. And, and specifically, that was some bullying of Carlos Marín in the streets uh, after a political rally, after a PRD mm -hmm. political rally. And this has been broadcast quite a bit on the traditional media in the country. Of course. I mean, Car uh, Carlos is a very well-known journalist, maybe one of the best jour uh, known journalists in the country. And uh, and the fact that he was uh, bullied by, uh, by the le in this case, by a group of sympathizers of Mr. López Obrador uh, was a cause of concern because Mr. Lopez, uh, this group is also uh, the group that some people fear will be uh, causing uh, problems after the elections if Mr. López Obrador doesn't win. Now, uh, this in a country where there is a number of people, uh, journalists killed uh, in the last few years, there's more than 100, more than 80 or 100 journalists killed in the last uh, 10 years. It is like, uh, sounds like, uh, like, like ridiculous, but uh, most of these journalists were killed during actions related or with or because uh, drug traffickers, etc. Mr. Uh, the problems for Mr. Uh, uh, Carlos Marin and uh, Mr. Ricardo Uleman have been more in just for their political affiliation, and that is cause of concern. And these are both journalists with Millennium. No, uh, Mr. Uh, Aleman is a political writer for uh, for Universal, and 
of course, he's also the problem is that he's also very much and very identified as anti Lopez Obrador. And so I think we're in agreement that the PRI are likely to win this election. It's the, what does that mean for Mexico? Does it mean going back to the past? No, no. I mean, the PRA might wish, uh, and I don't believe that, that even they are crazy enough. Well, the, the PRA might be the same, but the country is not the same. You have you have a Congress that is more or less independent. You have a you have a population that is more used to demand and more used to protest. The, the, you have you have a oh, even inside the PRI, you have a lot of uh, powers. Let's say the, the, the real powers that do not want just to keep to go back to give an allegiance to the president, Dash King. The country is not the same. Nor the, the left is very much on the out, and maybe twenty, some place between twenty and thirty percent of the of the vote. The right is maybe uh, down because the PAN brand is so hurt, but it's they might be twenty twenty five percent of the vote. I mean, you have fifty half of the country is not priista anymore, by far. It's a different different country. I'll just give you an idea. The PRI dominance years ago was based in a very vertical structure and the cusp of the structure was the president of the president of la republica the president and from there everything flowed down now the the, the pri lost the presidency 12 years ago the president is not the same figure than before there was a, a mexican writer used to say carlos Monsiváis used to say you need 20 years ago you needed to be very brave to criticize the president. Nowadays, you need to be very brave not to criticize the president. Well, with that, thank you, Jose Pepe Carreño, correspondent for Excelsior, one of the oldest newspapers in Mexico. Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse today. Great. Thank you very much. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As we heard earlier, Paraguay's parliament impeached President Fernando Lugo and removed him from office all within 48 hours last weekend. But Lugo has regrouped and is vowing to oppose the new government of Federico Franco with protests. Joining us to discuss Paraguay via Skype from Washington, D.C., is Eric Hirschberg, director of the American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Eric, welcome back to Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be here. Some are calling this a parliamentary coup can you help us understand what's actually going on in Paraguay? Well, I think that parliamentary coup is an apt phrase for what's taken place. Um, the legislature removed the president through um, a process that was formally legal, um, formally within the provisions of the Paraguayan Constitution, um, but that was intended to accomplish something that they had wanted to accomplish since his election in 2008, which was to drive him out of office. And uh, they did so in lightning quick fashion. 
uh, taking advantage of a moment of opportunity. Uh, and the president left the presidential palace uh, of his own volition uh, soon after uh, the vote taken by the Congress. Um, the question of what this means for Paraguay, um, I think, can be answered, first of all, in the sense that Lugo was arguably the first president in Paraguay's modern history who was not drawn from the oligarchy and who didn't represent the oligarchy. Uh, and while largely ineffective, he attempted to address a series of pending issues in Paraguay, um, particularly issues of land access. And the trigger for his removal was precisely a confrontation over uh, seizure or occupation of land by a group of landless peasants uh, who were occupying a plantation owned by one of the leaders of the principal um, establishment political party. Well, let's go back to Lugo's ineffectiveness. If he has been so ineffective, why are the powers that have tried to remove and successfully removed him, why are those powers so worried about him staying in office, the Paraguay is only about nine months away from new presidential elections. Uh, couldn't they have left him in office for that time? Well, I think that it may very well be that down the road we'll look back at this in hindsight and conclude that they actually should have done that. Um, but I think there's two things at work here, um, or three things at work here. The first is that they wanted him out from the beginning. And because of a series of alliance changes inside the parliament, um, getting him out through this kind of a mechanism was easier now than it would have been some months ago or earlier in his administration. Uh, the second issue is that they um, overestimated, I think, the ramifications of the land occupations and other activities that Lugo was not managing to contain. Uh, and the third issue, perhaps the most important, is that precisely because presidential elections are coming up next spring, you, each of the parties is trying to maneuver itself into a better position for those elections. Many people have suggested that what happened to Manuel Zelaya in 2009 in Honduras is the model for what's happening now in Paraguay and that perhaps Paraguayan elites see that, well, you pay a price, a diplomatic price for a year or two, but you remove someone who is troublesome. Well, it's an interesting, I mean, I think it's a very important comparison. Um, my own guess is that Paraguayan elites weren't thinking so much of the Honduran case. Um, but that um, I, I think their thinking was that they were observing um, constitutional, they were remaining within constitutional um, boundaries, and um, they will soon have an election that will legitimize a new administration, and so they could handle whatever minor fallout would take place in the, internationally. Um, from this particular inconvenient moment. Um, I think the comparison with Honduras is more interesting um, 
with regards to what it says about the inter-American system, in what it says about the capacity of democracies in the Americas to preserve democracy in the cases where it's most vulnerable. I mean, what we saw in Honduras was a case where the United States, um, in effect, allowed the coup uh, to endure. At first condemned, but then decided that they weren't going to take a very aggressive line. And the U.S. position of um, backing off a demand that Michelini remove himself from office uh, was critical in allowing the, the, the coup to succeed and in undermining the efforts of the OAS and Secretary General Insulsa um, to restore constitutional order in Honduras. The difference here is that the Americans don't really matter and the Americans haven't said anything except that they're concerned. Um, the Brazilians are the ones who most matter and I think here we see a case where how Brazil is going to respond and how Brazil as the leader of UNASUR and MERCOSUR, will regional South American regional organizations, how they will respond to this interruption of democratic politics uh, is going to be extremely interesting and important in terms of whether Paraguay becomes a precedent that could be enacted elsewhere. You mentioned the OAS, the Organization of American States. Mercosur has talked about this and is is discussing whether Paraguay should be expelled for, for this happening and Mercosur being very important South American economic bloc. Have we heard much from the Organization of American States on this? And why is the U.S. being so so tepid in its response to uh, what looks like a coup? Well, I think that the OAS uh, certainly feels burned and weakened by what took place in Honduras. And more generally, this has not been, the last couple of years, uh, the OAS has found itself increasingly marginalized. And so I think that there is relatively little that the organization can do um, and this is a pity because the Inter-American Democratic Charter, uh, which is one of the signal achievements of the OAS, was designed precisely to address circumstances such as this one of interruptions in democratic rule. Um, Mercosur um, has, as I understand it, indicated that they are suspending Paraguay from the um, South American common market. Uh, what we don't yet see is what the longer-term ramifications will be, uh, how this will go beyond the question of membership in the trade organization and so on and so forth, uh, and whether any efforts will be made to force a change in the situation between now and the elections, or whether this will simply be a kind of symbolic measure that will be introduced pending the election of a government in Paraguay, uh, which would then be readmitted. Um, the U.S. position on this, I think, you know, the U.S. is increasingly a marginal player in South America, and particularly in the southern parts of South America. And the U.S. Um, was um, clearly ineffective, was seen throughout the region as ineffective with regard to what happened in Honduras. And I think that the U.S. looks at the Honduran case and concludes that the worst thing for them is to demand a restoration of a constitutional order or of a, of a government 
that isn't going to be respond and then to come across as toothless. Uh, so the Americans essentially call for people um, not to engage in violence and to negotiate their differences, uh, but don't stand up for the principle of preserving democratic rule. And I think that's a pity. I think it, and I think it's a testimony to the degree to which under successive administrations, but including this one, um, the Americans are losing relevance in Latin America. Thank you, Eric Hirschberg, Director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, joining us via Skype between Washington, D.C. and De Efe or Mexico City. One important editorial note, the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies is also the sponsor of this program. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse from Mexico. For our entire team, associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucho nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>